ready to tell the damn story. Yes, I am. I am. I am. I am. And double, 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 double damn I am. Yes, how are you? How are you? This wonderful. Uh, is it still morning? Yes, it is still morning. This wonderful yes. weekend morning. It's great. It's, yes. It, it is beautiful. Blue skies, nice breeze, nice Sun temperature. However, nothing but blue skies. Do I see? I'm sorry. Go ahead. <laughs> little darkness in our hearts, though. Yeah, darkness, well, a little yeah. sadness in our hearts. Yeah. Um, the great, the legendary Danny O'Neill has passed. Yeah. And um, I'm going to let you talk about him because you knew him. I, I was just a fanboy. Yeah. <laughs> you knew him. Well, so you know, talk about it. Then I, I want to show funny. why he should be remembered. But Denny, Denny didn't. Uh, Denny and I didn't start out as 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 fans of either uh, 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 of the other. I mean, he didn't didn't dislike me. But uh, it's funny how I first met him. And I'll do this quickly. Um, you know, I work on blackjack. Some of you who listen to the show, obviously, Chris knows that. Uh, it was in those early days of creating the character and writing this, the first kind of you know the pseudo script. I hadn't really completed it. And I've been working with Dick Giordano. He was sort of mentoring me on the process. And Dick Giordano was a big editor and VP at, at DC at the time. That I, and I knew him. And just as we got it to a point of where, yeah, okay, we're going to present it to DC now. And maybe DC will want to do Blackjack. And this is, you know, 1980s, I think it was. Um, Denny became a senior editor there. They just brought him on. And he was helping them retool their line and come up with fresh ideas for the series and everything. Denny was the one who turned Blackjack down. <laughs> so he was Damn, not... Damn, Denny, what's yeah, up? Not Denny? my favorite person at that time. I mean, nothing personal, personal, but I was really disappointed. Funny I've thing, though, life you two off. over the years at cons be very warm towards each other. Oh, no, how did, that, how did you get there? He wasn't a bad guy. It was just they had a whole, you know, set idea of what they wanted to do with the DC world, the universe and all that. They were going to reboot the shadow and some other stuff. And so my stuff didn't fit in, you know, like I said, nothing personal, nothing nasty. But like I said, I was I was heartbroken. But either way, the universe continues to spin, turn, whatever, and life goes on. And years later, after I had, you know, indie produced or published Blackjack and we had some traction with the series and some fans and all that, uh, Joe Iliage, who was an associate editor at DC, was working for Denny, who was a senior editor there. And Joe pulls me in, after talking to Denny, pulls me in to have a dialogue about creating a new character for the Batman universe. And that's where uh, I came up with Orpheus. And so that's when I finally met Denny on a working level. And I, I, I told him, I said, you know, it's, it's funny, here we are having this conversation when such and such had happened. From that day, from the day that I met him to just a few years ago, um, I mean, I always respected his work, and you know, we'll talk a bit about that. I always respected his writing skills. He was a really, really great guy. But I'm, I'm really, uh, I'm really blessed and 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 honored to have been able to call him a friend, and uh, definitely one of the people I respected. Um, I, I you know, he used to do these little free sessions, these like, like um, mentoring sessions at DC. I got to sit in on a few of those. And he was a generous, generous man with his knowledge and his understanding of, of creative writing. So, um, yeah, I mean, you know, it's that circle of life thing. And it looks so much more uh, accepted, you know, accepting and, and tolerable in The Lion King. 
But yeah, I you know I guess he was eighty something. I guess you know. He was eighty one when he passed. Yeah, ho- he passed on June eleventh. Hopefully it wasn't uh, natural causes according to the uh, the papers. Yeah. So. Excuse me. Uh, according to the papers, it was natural causes. Yeah. So you know, I'm sorry, he's not, but but I, yeah. I thank him for the time that he was here and for what he did for all well, of us. In in tribute to him, if you'll indulge me for a minute or two. I used um, to, don't I? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, she did. Thank God. Somebody has to. My wife is exhausted. Got it. <laughs> oh, yeah. Um, yeah, okay. So uh, I was going over. I have uh, a couple of box sets, uh, Green Lantern, Green Arrow, Far Traveling again, Heroes buddy. collection. Hold that up. And, hold, that up again. hold that up and again while you're this talking. This is the slipcase. Oh, nice, of, nice. Uh, Green Lantern, Green Arrow. It's the yep. whole run of the Hard Traveling Heroes done by... Danny O'Neill as the writer and Neil Adams, the legendary Neil Adams, yeah. as uh, the artist. And they also work together on uh, Batman. We'll talk about that in a minute. Mm-hmm. Um, but here uh, I'm struck by how current, and I mean like right this <laughs> minute, 2020, no, their work is. Oh. Now, you know, I mean, there might be a couple of uh, uh, some of the dialogue may have aged a little bit and sound a little corny, but. This is April 1970. It's the uh, number 76 uh, issue of Green Lantern, co-starring Green Arrow. It's the first issue that uh, Denny and Neil did together. And it opens up with Green Lantern, who has often been been called Space Cop, right? A Space Mm -hmm. Cop. And he's flying through uh, uh, whatever city he's in. It looks like, you know, typical American city. And um, I guess, uh, what is it, Star City? Is that where Green Arrow lives, something, whatever? But I think it's either Star or Central. I, I think Central, Central is the flag. The... So, yes, yeah, yeah, Star so, City. Star City. So he's flying through there, and there's, you know, um, there's a situation on the street. You know, this is kind of a, one, of, uh, one of the more down, run-down neighborhoods. Mm-hmm. And a young guy is pushing... Uh, an older guy and uh, saying, we don't like your kind around here, fatso and all that sort of stuff, and he pushes him to the ground, you know, and um, some people are, you know, encouraging him, and Green Lantern comes swooping down, powering, picks up this kid, this pedestrian, he's like a, maybe 20-something or whatever, and, and really gives it to him. Boom, boom, you know, roughs him up, spins him around like a top, Puts him in a cage, you know, and says, uh, uh, he flies into police headquarters and says, I'll be there to prefer charges in a couple of minutes. And he goes down, he pats the, the older guy on the shoulder and all that sort of stuff, you know. And um, people start throwing garbage at them from the rooftops. He, he protects the guy and says, What the hell is this? And he drives up and he grabs the guy and he says, uh, you want a riot, mister? Okay, that's what I'll give you. And off screen, we hear a voice. Touch him first, Green Lantern, and you'll have to touch me second. And I touch back. Believe it, chum. Back off. Go chase a mad scientist or something. And it's the Green Arrow. You know, hanging on a, a fire escape or a stoop or something. And uh, Green Arrow, says Green Lantern. You are defending these these anarchists? Boy, does this sound right up to the bay, isn't it? Um, 
Can't you see they're breaking the law? And Green Arrow's like, yeah, I can see. Lots of things. Like, you've got no business here. And I'm almost tempted to throw a can at you myself. You're not making sense, Green Arrow. No? Come on. I'll give you a guided tour. A look at how the other half lives. If you can call it living. And they're going up a stoop. And uh, it's all black families around here. Except for this one little old white lady who lives in the neighborhood. Uh, the lady here is the grandmother of the kid you sent to police headquarters. She's 80, and he's her only means of support. Might got to drop out of school and get a crummy job because she had no one else. That's tough, but blast it! He was breaking the law, says Green Lantern. Green out. Technically, he was, sure. He lost his temper, and he roughed up the fat cat landlord who owns this dump. The, green, the creep who hasn't spent a cent for repairs in years. And there's all little kids, little black kids running around the, the tenement and that kind of stuff. And uh, he says, now he figures he can make more money using the property for a parking lot. So he's going to evict these tenants. And now we're talking about uh, gentrification, right? Mm-hmm. Kick out a lot of old folks on the street. Lord knows this building is bad, but they don't have anything else. Like, like what you've seen, listen. Like what you've seen, listen. I hope you've enjoyed playing the superhero out there. I hope you, it did a lot of good for your ego. Hey, hey, Green, Green Lantern says, easy. You've got no cause to yell at me. I have a job. I do it. Green Lantern says, it seems like I've heard that line before at the Nazi war trials. And then we get a voice off off screen again. I want to ask the ring slinger a question, Mr. Green Arrow. And an older black gentleman's coming. I've been reading about, he's talking to Green, uh, Green Lantern. Mm-hmm. I've been reading about how you work for the blue skins and how on a planet someplace you help the orange skins and you've done considerable for the purple skins. Only skins you never bothered with. The black skins. I want to know how come. Answer me that, Mr. Green Lantern. Neil Adams, true Green Lantern, fantastic. He's got the shoulders slumped and the head down in chains. Ah, I can't. And that's usually where the scene ends. But if you look at the next panel on the next page, in the time it takes to draw a single breath, the span of a heartbeat, a man looks into his own soul. And his life changes. Okay, says Green Lantern. Uh, I may have been a dummy. So tell me, how do I help? Black man's not letting him off the hook. Mm-hmm. I'm no advice committee. If you want to bad enough, you'll find a way. I think you want to. And it goes on from there. But that's what... That's what sends their relationship, Green Lantern and Green Arrow, going. And it's it's exactly that conversation that is happening right now in 2020, right? Yep. Black Lives Matter, you know, uh, white people got to check their privilege, got to shut up and listen, got to reevaluate. And Denny was writing about it. 44 years ago. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. 
Yeah, yeah. So in tribute to, to Denny O'Neill, the things, and this was groundbreaking. There were no superheroes dealing with this at this time. That's they right. also dealt with Green Arrow's uh, Ward Speedy yeah. doing drugs right on the cover. Right. They, yeah. they had a, a, a Christ figure, and, and the big company, it was a big airline, crucified them, and on and on and on. They took on the big uh, issues, and they did the impossible. They modernized Green Lantern and Green Arrow to the point where they were relevant for the times mm-hmm. and started a tradition of having these characters reinventing or rebooting these characters to reflect the time. As a matter of fact, there's yep. one other character yes, there that is. they did. At that time, the oldest character in the DC uh, stable was, you know, of course, and he continues to be, Batman. But he was in danger of cancellation because his reputation had fallen so low as a result of the Batman TV show, which kids loved. Yeah. I but think that show was serious. Yeah, it wasn't just kids. a character for kids. And the older generation was buying it. Right. It was a character. It had limited what people could do with Batman until Denny and Neil said, we'll make him the Dark Knight detective. And they recreated Batman as the American Sherlock Holmes. Save that character and spun that kind of storytelling in a new direction, brought a new maturity, you know, that, I, that even Marvel had to adjust, you know? What they did, what that's they Denny did... That's Denny O'Neill. What they did, and what... Yeah, absolutely, that's Denny's writing, you know, and I don't know what the dialogue was between Denny and Neil in terms of their collaboration, but definitely that was Denny's writing. I, I just... Well, definitely, they were in it together, but... Part of what... Part of what you're just talking about here is what we're going to talk about further uh, very shortly, and and that is how one looks back in order to move forward. Because yeah. part, you know, for, for people who don't know the Batman history, and I'm not going to go into it at length, but Batman started out as a dark character, as a, a character, a creature of the night, you know, coming out of the shadows with the cape flowing and all that, and was more serious, you know, in the early 30s and and and. and even to a portion of the 40s was more serious. In the 40s, they gave him Robin, so it lightened up a little bit more and it became more adventure. And yet he was supposedly a good detective and he would figure out certain things. I think what happened as we moved into the 50s, 60s, was we went from Batman, detective, urban streets, mystery, to Batman and, Miz, uh, and Batmite and, and well, aliens coming. And it went kind of... Sci-fi well, because it was a reaction to um, yeah, Seduction to, of the Innocent right. and the uh, congressional hearings about comics demonstra- uh, damaging people. And they asked, uh, is Batman having an illicit homosexual affair with Robin? And DC was like, make him as harmless as possible. And they gave him a dog and they gave him an entire family and they, yeah, they just fought aliens. Yeah which made no sense. Yes, exactly. <laughs> but again, and that segued into the 60s and the TV series, a campy TV right. series. And then, as you said, Denny and Neil got their hands on it. And, and you know. And they saw the value, off, right? Yes. They saw the right. value. This is not a laughing stock. This is a character that still has stories in it, right? Mm-hmm. And that's what we want to talk about today because you were talking about some great tropes from old classic films and we started talking about how 
in many cases, they're being completely reinvented with new blood, uh, not changing for change's sake, but thoughtful, story-element-oriented changes that make vibrant statements for today. We wanted to look at some of that and hopefully inspire our creatives out there to look at the source material they have and combine it with their uh, their experience of today and, and breathe new life exactly. into some of these things. And, so, and this comes from not only just the fact that Chris and I are brilliant and, and you know, we look into <laughs> the, Yeah, we're <laughs> killing without saying, doesn't it? But, you know, also as teachers, both of us teach, you know, we work with students, whether they're teens or older, but we work with students, people who are looking, to, how does this work? What's the mechanics of creativity and blah, 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 blah. Um, We've, we've had these conversations with our students, of, uh, you know, and some students, like I have fun with some of my students who are younger, who, you know, I've never, until they meet me, seen a black and white movie. They've never watched one, or they think black and white movies have nothing to offer. There's no, there's no connection. It, it's almost like we have that attitude about until we're born, nothing ever happened. You know, so, you know, it's that kind of, and all, all of us have, have gone through some phase of that. But so we're going to look at, as you said, some of the tropes, some of the older films and stories that uh, were relevant at the time they were created. And then we watched how some other creatives grabbed up those tropes and made them relevant for that particular time. And I, I, we, we made a list here, I, you know, for those of you who can't. And we checked it twice. Yes, we did. And, and there's some naughty and there's some nice stuff here, too. So we started out. <laughs> we started out with with an older trope, uh, 1933, sci-fi or sci-fi horror, The Invisible Man. And, and if any of you guys have not seen the original film or know anything about the original story, H.G. Uh, Wells, you know it's basically um, you know it starts with someone creating a chemical for X reason. We don't need to go into the motivation of it, but it actually does enable them, enables light to pass through them, and they become invisible. And in the original story, um, what the scientist doesn't, because science is like that, you know, we got this great formula, let's do this, we got this bomb, let's drop it, you know, don't worry about the consequences. The scientist doesn't figure out, doesn't realize that in using this serum, which does make him invisible, it also affects his mind, and he goes mad. But it's, yeah, 1933, and it's really well laid out of, of how we meet this character, and how we eventually begin to learn that he is going, he's got this great power, but it's driving him insane. And what he does with it and, and how people have to deal with this, this scary, horrible thing, does it represent the future? And there's a little bit of redemption in the story as well. You know, learn from your mistake, please. Of course, you know, whether or not we do is a whole other story. But then you, you and I, we were talking about that, you bring up the re- new version. Yes, and um, it gets more interesting as you find out the story behind, right? So um, Universal, they have the Universal Monsters, right? Yeah. Uh, the Mummy and Frankenstein and Count, uh, uh, Count Dracula and the Wolfman and the Invisible <laughs> Man and all that stuff, right? Yeah, they and, Count uh, Dracula. You like that? Did you like that? That's for you. Dracula. Yeah, <laughs> Dracula. Hello. <laughs> Go ahead. Creature of the night. Okay, so... Uh, Please, go to the sleep. The idea yeah. was to reboot all of these in big, grand scale. They wanted um, a Universal Monsters universe 
and they kind of, it seems to me, I mean, I'm a guy sitting in the den. I don't work for Universal, so. But it seemed like they were looking at the MCU and saying, yes, we want something that big. And then the mummy tanked. Uh, was well, before that, Van Helsing. To... Huh? Before well, that. Well, Van Helsing was, was before this push. That's what I said. create before a universe. Before that, because they had Dracula, Frankenstein. They had that in Van Helsing and, it, it, and the werewolf. And it didn't yeah. work for them. Right. That, and then they were going, after the MCU took off, uh, yeah. DC was doing its universe. They said, we're going to have our monsters universe. And they led with the money, but it tanks. They're like, all right. They canceled all the other movies that were in pre-production. They didn't know what to do and all that sort of stuff. So then they called in uh, a group of um, kind of cutting-edge modern uh, uh, creators filmmakers and they said okay here are the here are the uh, universal monsters go think of new modern ways modern interpretations modern iterations and what you would do with it don't worry about you know what you can and cannot just come and tell us ideas and god forgive me i don't remember the filmmaker's name but he came with this uh pitch for the for invisible man right and it is uh, it's out now on demand only because of COVID, or else it would be a, a hit in the movie theaters. Um, its modern take is one of domestic abuse, of stalking, of uh, sexism, and and it's a very modern monster. This invisible man is stalking his ex-wife. And it's extremely effective, cutting-edge, modern storytelling, retooling creatively that classic trope from the 1930s. If you haven't seen it yet, you know, I think it's going for like $20, $25 on demand. Get a couple people together, sit around, check it out. You know, and maybe watch the original first and then go and check out that one. And you'll see how well you can breathe modern life into a classic trope. So that's the first one. I cannot pronounce his last name, but his first name, the first name is Lee, L-E-I-G-H. The last name is, looks like Wanell, Wanell, W-H-A-N-N-E-L-L. Mm-hmm. We'll and it stars Elizabeth out. Moss. Yeah, yeah, yep. Which is, you know, but they did a fantastic job. Um, well worth checking out. So uh, there's our first example of the reboot. So what's the next one on the list? The next one on the list is uh, The Thin Man, 1934. Right. Okay, so you were about 20. You take it. You tell us. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to send people to your house. (laughs) Yep, they'll be coming up with walkers and wheelchairs. No, 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 no. I got a football. Maybe a hip. We don't know. Maybe a hip. I'm going to have to hurt you. (laughs) I was 20. So you tell us about The Thin Man. Yes, The Thin Man. Okay, so this is um, 1933. It starred uh, Myrna Loy and William Powell, who were celebrities at that time. And I won't go into you know, who directed it and all that, because that you can look up. But, you know, it was it was um, a new take 
on relationships, husband and wife relationships. And again, we're talking 1930s, so we're talking Americana. Man has his place, woman has hers. Somewhere down. That's right, the little lady. She the should be staying in the kitchen, the little lady. Raise, raise the kitchen, right? Raise the children, stay in the kitchen. Uh, oh, okay. oh, God. Oh, my God. And keep your mouth shut and look good. And that was, you know, that was kind of, you know, maybe in a nicer form, they might say it. But by my, your, your goal is to have a college education so you can get a job as a secretary and marry the boss. This was kind of the life you were leading, okay, as, you know, in terms of women and male relationships. So along comes, and Dashiell Hammett did not... You know, he had a modernized kind of relationship in the in the novel that he wrote that the movie was based for the time. <laughs> yeah, for the time, right? So the movie decided to go just a little bit better. They take these two very personable actors. They create, you know, they create this film, which was shot in 14 days, which is very unusual for them. And they create this this sort of modern couple where he honestly loves her and she honestly loves him. And there's a little, a lot of playfulness between them, and it's cute. They've got a dog, and it's, oh, it's very nice and bound. And he drinks like a fish. Oh, okay. I have always got a martini in his hand. Not only in so the, it's the glorifying, it's yeah, the glorifying well, of the alcohol lifestyle. She's wealthy, and he was a private detective who retires and marries her. And it's going to help manage her money, which she got from her daddy. Okay, so like, like I said, let's keep this in perspective. She yeah, didn't like it herself, that. right? But again, evening parties, restaurants, he is drinking, and it's fine. It's cool. He's the amiable drunk. He's not sloshing and, fl and falling around. He's suave, and he's a little silly, and he's always drinking, even in the morning. And, okay? and audiences ate it up. Love this. Ate it up. There were like four sequels, four sequels to it, and it, it changed ever so slightly as they continued in the film. There was a point where they tried to get him to drink less, but you know, especially after they had a child. But the bottom line is, Nick's got to have a drink, okay? Well, we ain't, you know, I mean, you could you could look at, I think we brought up Animal House. I mean, we move forward through time. You've got alcohol is cool, smoking is cool. Then, you know, we get into the 50s, 60s, drugs are cool. And, and like we get to Animal House, which was what, the 70s? That's the 70s, yeah. Right. And then Anchorman was like the 90s or the early 2000s. They still did but a lot of alcohol. Taking in substance into your body and sloshing your brain like crazy. All cool, all acceptable, all funny. But. Right. Can you get away with it today? No. <laughs> no, you can't. You can't. You have to be exceptional to get, I, while we were talking about this, it occurred to me there is a show currently. Yes, Cumberbatch, right? Well, no, you're going to talk about Cumberbatch. Matter of fact, go ahead now. And no, no, talk no, about no. Go with yours, yours because I wasn't going to talk about it anymore All than right. it. But go ahead, yeah. Well, they, in Cumberbatch, they uh, his show they deal with it as addiction. Right. Right. Yes. Okay. Absolutely. So I'm thinking about Thin Man vibe, right? Yeah. Alcohol, parties, social, you know, uh, uh, morally decrept, right? Yeah. As a acceptable lifestyle. Right. There is a show that that has that. Here's how they get away with making that likable in, you know, in the current generation. His name is Lucifer Morningstar. Oh, yes. <laughs> yes, you're right. If you think about it, that's right. Lucifer. take yeah. on the Thin Man. But yeah. you have to be the devil 
to excuse that behavior. Well, he's the devil. Bit. Yeah. Oh, yeah. He's, he's the devil, right? Yeah. But, but if you can't do that um, glorification or overindulgence in alcohol or uh, that kind of lifestyle is is seen as uh, uh, you're a loser and you're in or you're in desperate shape that that has to lead to catastrophe mm-hmm. loss of relationship loss of job rehab rebuild you know and there's tons of those stories now well Cumberbatch's show is is Mel was it Melrose uh, Patrick Melrose is the series and mm-hmm. it takes place in the 80s and what what okay. I, I find and again he's substitute. because you can't do it 2020 right. but in the 80s yeah, everybody was a mess. Yeah, and again, it's it's like you were saying. It's this one is it explores the 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 darker side, the negative side of that experience. The fact that you eventually crash and burn. And I was gonna just to bring it to comic books for a second. One of the things that changed my mind about a certain actor and a and a film he was gonna do uh, was a film like this uh, before before this movie. The actor, Michael Keaton, I only knew him from Beetlejuice and some other crazy things that he had done. And then I hear he's going to be Batman. I think I'd mentioned this in one of our episodes. And I'm thinking, oh, God, they're going to do another zany Batman kind of movie, goofy kind of thing, like the Adam. And then you saw this film. And I was freaked. And then I saw Michael Keaton in Clean and Sober, in which... You realized that guy can do anything. That's right. Michael is. I don't have to say was, thank goodness. Michael is a consummate actor. And that's when I went, oh, oh, that's who he is. He really yeah. is an actor. And, oh, and again, there is potential. Drug abuse know. and all of that, and the fact that he was about, he was crashing and burning, and he had a great life around him. He wasn't coming from poverty or anything. He was a, a successful exec with all the trimmings, and he was losing it. He was totally losing it. So, again, we can look at the 30s. You can look at the trope of, of, of party people kind of thing, you know, wild and crazy. And if you come forward past Animal House and some of the other things, you have, like, you know, Patrick Melrose, you have, you know, what we just talked about, Clean and Sober, but you also have some of the, the party shows, the quote-unquote reality shows right. that get ridiculous, and they have people, several people living in a house, supposedly drinking, smoking, uh, sex up, you know, from, from 6 a.m. to 6 p.m. and whatever, maybe they take a rest, I don't know. Uh, and, and this all looks good to us, supposedly, and, but we're actually watching these people crash and burn, and that's called entertainment. So however you look at it, you take the trope of the party people and you move it through an era, and that era seems to affect how we present it to our audience. And you were mentioning, um, when we were kind of pre-planning this part, uh, the reality shows. Yeah. And I had mentioned, yes, but they're watched as train wreck watching. Yeah, like you know, you you watch Jersey Shore and all that stuff, and you're waiting for it to all go wrong for them because you know this is not the way to live, and these people are, you know, and and I'm just waiting for the, and honestly, I'm waiting for one of these personalities in one of these reality shows to turn around and sue the production company for willingly encouraging their alcoholism or whatever, because <laughs> it's just wanton behavior uh, for the sake of the train wreck, you know? Yeah. Um, fascinating that um, it's almost hate-watching. It's almost anti-watching. Oh, yeah, yeah. And so My instead of... Be better 
you know, my, I'm going to feel better about my life because I'm watching that life just literally crash and burn or train wreck or whatever other, you know, explode, whatever other negative term you want to use. But again, in the 30s, where it was the that's what that's the lifestyle we want. Now yeah, it's all well, yeah. those people, they, they have to have a reckoning. Yeah, and you know? again, it's not like I mean, you had you had characters in certain movies who drank beer or whiskey or scotch. You know, obviously, some of like the some of the private detectives, they had that bottle of scotch in the desk drawer or whatever. But for like, you can't the, do that today. Yeah, for some the thin man and some. Well, you can. You know, it's just it makes a difference. Yeah, but you the can't do it and make it uh, uh, um, make that person not get redeemed for that. Well, yeah, it says something about the individual's life. And what I was going to say right. is Thin Man and some of these other characters, at that point, they drank martinis, champagne. Uh, you know, they, they, they drank what was considered upscale. And, and so that was society. That was, you know, the, the height of good living. And then, if you, again, if you were a stevedore, okay, you drank bourbon or, or whiskey, right. scotch, or your beer, yeah, you know? That's how you that's do it. Right. And yeah. all of those, you know, pointed social status in certain way, shape, or form. So again, storytelling, how we deal with this now, it's a different ballgame. And there's even several so, shows with your characters who have drinking problems, and yet there are hero characters. So we know so you have a problem. You, it's not a great one. I want to make a prediction. Go ahead. That is related to this. Because um, we got a few more films to go through. Yeah, go ahead. There's going to be somewhere, someone is going to write a story about hard partying cops behind the blue wall who, you know, think they're untouchable and have that warrior mentality. And they come slamming into what has been, you know, uh, the last two weeks, three weeks of America. And who's denying them and who's hides in a bottle and who gets, you know, Mm. Uh, awakened by it and has to reevaluate and you know and 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 that kind of thing that's uh, mm -hmm. going to be a compelling story in the next couple of years again and it's it it, it has its roots in this you know and we because we, again we look at where as creators we look at where we are what's going on around us what we've experienced and then we look at what is this story or this theme that we want to explore and and we we work with that um, right, what's so next, please? Well, next is, you know, let's let's talk about, again, the role of women in society as seen through films. And one of them is a, a very well-known film called Little Women, 1938. Oh, my God. Ladies and gentlemen, uh, just brace yourself, because Alex loves these. He loves Little Women. He loves the movies. Go ahead, Alex. <laughs> Yeah, well, you know, as old as I am, you know, I got all I can do is love, love them in film, right? Jesus Christ! Remember, um, reading it while the ink was still dry. Little the original I, novel. Turpin <laughs> this damn thing and try and get it published. Uh, you know, Little Women again. You know, as, as it's a heartfelt kind of tale. You know, because we're not, we're not. It's not about debauchery. It's not about you know riots and things like that. It's it's this family. It's these four girls growing up in this household. At a particular time, they are not wealthy. Uh, one of them aspires to be with a, you know, to marry this man who is, you know, from money. But it's about, you know, the, the homespun sense, relationships between these young women, uh, what their mother means to them, what is expected of them with life. And the one character in there who is 
rebelling in her own way against that trope, that expectation of women only being there to bear children and keep a nice house, is, is Joe, who has a, a male-type name, if you will. It's probably Josephine. But she's referred to as Joe. And she wants to be a writer. You know, and in 1933, and actually the, the, um, the, the book was written years before that, but in that time period, in that early time period, to, to be a writer, to actually have a career, is ludicrous. Women don't have careers. Women are only supposed to be X, Y, and Z. Right. So in 1933, the way the film was done, um, I think it was Catherine Hepburn was one of the leads at that time, it is, uh, it's a little feistier than the books, but it's still in a time period when society hadn't quite let ladies step out there and go, damn it, it's my life, let me do what I want with it. So it has they didn't that, have agency. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. So it has that sort of softer approach to the rebellious nature. And I think, again, the storytelling is being, like, let's face it, the story is being told by men. Even though the book was written by a woman, the film was made by guys and with women as the stars, because I don't think we would have accepted, you know, uh, Cesar Romero playing Joe. So bottom line, that's another old reference, folks. This is an actor <laughs> or something else at that time. <laughs> So we have that version of it, 1933, and then in 2019, we get a new version of it. Which thrilled you so much, we had to do an episode about it. Right. We do well because I love Little Women. Right. We get a new version of it with a woman writer, screenwriter, and director on the film. And so now it's Little Women with women as told by women completely and possibly for the first time. And I think and? it was more, I think the portrayals by, and you, you'll get different arguments with this, but the portrayals of the characters, the way the story was laid out, felt different, felt a little fresher mm -hmm. around the edges. I enjoyed the film. I felt there were some problems, you know, things that I, but nothing that I, really should stop anybody from seeing it if they want to. Um, but I did definitely feel there's a different energy to it, and it, it was it was it was fun for me to watch that. And because you know, again, I'm old, it was fun for me in my head after the movie, after experiencing the 2019 version of seeing in my head the two films and juxtapositioning the approaches on it. And even yeah. the, the films ended because, again, one was in the control of women telling their story. And and I think that the differences you're seeing in that is that in the newer one, again, there's subtle changes in agency and in being able to do it for themselves and all that stuff. Mm -hmm. However, it was still a period piece. Mm -hmm. Oh yeah, absolutely. Imagine, imagine. That tale set in 2020. Right? I mean, I'm I don't not the one. You're not the one to say what challenges women still have in 2020, mm -hmm. but there's enough to modernize that little women uh, piece to confront everything. I wonder if they know? take the little out. I wonder if the title would just be women. I'm just curious. Well, I'm just curious. Well, I think that's you know that's for some other creative to make that decision. Yeah. But I'm, I think maybe throwing it in quotation marks, 
And one of the themes being how, you know, the, uh, the society still sees them as little women. They see themselves or maybe parentheses, little women, you know, and, uh, let them be women, you know? Um, but again, that's, that's what we do. We look at what was and think of what if. And yeah. I think that's, that's really kind of the exciting part of seeing what came before. You know, yeah, I, think, I, I think that has a lot of potential. Mm-hmm. You know, or even if you call it women, you know? Yeah. yeah. Um, but yeah, that, that's interesting to see what okay. happens with that. So, so, so now you, 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 um, you like that, huh? So since we're talking about women and women not having any power at a certain time and being considered in a certain position in society and being held down or oppressed, blah, 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 and that's not me being facetious, we segue very nicely into a film that I only discovered uh, just last year by accident via YouTube. YouTube, thank you for being there. I found an old film called Intruder in the Dust. It was made in 1949, and it's a story about, it's in a a southern town, a story about a black man, an old black man who is accused of murdering a white man in a very racist, bigoted town and environment. And basically, some of the citizens of the town want to just lynch the guy and get it over with, but he's going to get a trial, and there's a white lawyer who lives in the town who comes to to be his his um, his his lawyer uh, at the insistence of the lawyer's son, who's about I don't know, seems to be about 17 in the story. So you got a white lawyer, white son, trying to defend this old black man from a charge of murder. Yes, it does sound familiar. It does sound like To Kill a Mockingbird. But let me just point it out that this came first and was on a much lower budget without any um, stars, superstars in it. And what I, I find interesting is you have that film, and I'm, I, I can talk about who directed and what it was based on in a moment, but you have that film representing that scenario and racism, I mean rampant racism, where this old man is, but the reason many of the people in the town hate his guts is because he's not a step and fetch it character in that town. He walks tall. He doesn't call anybody Mr. 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 John or Mr. Michaels. He calls people by their you know their first name. He expects to be respected. He is not wealthy at all, but he owns this piece of property that he's got his house on. That's his house, you know, and he expects to be treated with a certain amount of respect and doesn't bow his head. And they definitely want to take his head off. So they're willing to do whatever is necessary. And this, you know, again, you've got this legal situation and you've got a mystery to work out as to who, you know, did he commit the murder or not? And we, we fortunately have uh, a very modern iteration of it. Yeah. In, a similar situation. Yeah. Just mercy. Yeah. You know, and one of the great, Michael, um, yeah. innovations there is take out the great white hero. Yeah, exactly. Right? Move him. Yeah. It's a, uh, a black yeah. African-American lawyer. Mm-hmm. But then you get to explore, you know, very modern um, take on the criminal justice system. And as harrowing, if much more, if not as harrowing, 
than much more harrowing uh, uh, in that telling than in the movie you're talking about. Yeah, um, in either case, there is no justice for the black face in the in, in the yeah. story. It's not expected. It's not. It is a systematic uh, understanding and supposedly acceptance of the fact you are what we tell you you are. You know, you are what we expect you to be. And if you are not that, then we need to close you off, get rid of you, whatever. And by the way, Intruders in the Dust, uh, the, the, I'm amazed that the film was made. We'll go back to Michael B. Jordan in a moment. But I'm amazed the film was made because it's 1949. It was made by uh, a, a bigger studio. I think it was Columbia. I'll check. But they had no impetus that I can find for doing a film like this at that time. There was, there was no big push that I can find that might have been the inspiration. There's, there was no Black Lives Matter at that time, you know, for this. It would be interesting. It was, well, hang on, let me just finish this thing. It was based on a novel by William Faulkner, which came out the year before. So I would love to understand how all that came together synchronistically, but so far I haven't found out. But anyway, you were going to say. Well, I mean, no, with the novel by William Faulkner, we got to put this on film, you know, and Faulkner by that point had, you know, the reputation and probably it would be interesting to compare the, uh, the publishing history of To Kill a Mockingbird and to see if that had been snatched up for a film. And if so, then you're, Prior then to you're or, or, yeah, then you're I, racing the, you know, raising the, uh, the clock there to get yours out first and stuff. Well, but you know, again, you look at you look at this. Yeah, you can say it was Faulkner, and God, Faulkner writes these novels, and everybody knows his name. So let's do a film about one of his books. Why that one? Because again, it was 1949. That's just not a time period in American history where everybody was racing to have a better representation <laughs> of the ills sad, befalling sad the black families, the black the black lives. Sad but true. But I would say to you that we have heard. In our very own history, more yours than mine, but, oh, we can't make, you know, uh, 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 a black lead. Can't open a movie. You can't do an action-adventure, uh, 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 a time-period action-adventure yeah, with a black lead? That's unheard of. Yeah, yeah. Not in our own lifetime. Well, you know, today thankfully now we're starting to see that change a little bit. Huh? Today is your day for doing character voices. Yeah, sure. Because it's they're just so deserving of mockery. Yeah, thank you, <laughs> thank you, and and you do it well. But yeah, you, but you get what I'm saying. And now you know the 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 uh, Mercy. Mercy, you know, is not a movie that's been released because of the Black Lives Matter movement that's happening right at this second. It's a movie that came out prior to this, mm -hmm. although unfortunately not prior to a lot of the atrocities that have brought the Black Lives Matter movement to the level that it's reached. So and the atrocities make this more important. Yeah, and and unfortunately, and the book, read the book too. Read yeah, it. again, as you can see, there's a long history of it, even longer than 1949. So you know, and here's another one. We got more history to make. That, yeah, you know. and, and All right, what's next? Change history. Um, but again, just to round this off, it's, it's a matter, again, looking back at elements, how society represented it at one time, and then how we can take those same story elements and represent them now. So moving over to, you know, because I was, I was in 1949 at that point. Let's go to 1952. 
We have run into the modern time, ladies and gentlemen. Yeah, almost. I, almost <laughs> yeah, almost. Uh, almost uh, what do we got? What do we got? Yeah, we got something for you. Because you're a nice Irish boy, aren't you? Get it. Get it. Irish. Yes. So let's let's talk about a nice Irish film called The Quiet Man. Ah, uh, it's a classic, isn't it? Right. Again with <laughs> Catherine, who's a little older right. at this point, and John Wayne. Right, who is never believable as anything other than John Wayne. So yeah, but, but he, he put a little Irish in his voice, but it didn't really work. Did yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's okay. He straddled through or strode through or, or strutted through that film, and they told us he was Irish, and it was fine. It was John Wayne. I saw a clip recently of him as Genghis Khan, and just bizarre. Just bizarre. So, yeah. I'm not spending any time on that. So, you got got him in Ireland, and you've got uh, a fighter who had, and just to give away a little bit of the film, fighter who had had a bad experience in the United States. He'd been a champion fighter. He had a horrible experience in the United States. And he decides to live a quiet life, to go somewhere where he doesn't have to use his fist anymore and maybe just live a quiet life you know, with a cottage, a house or whatever. And he goes back to Ireland. And mm-hmm. he, of course, in the, in the throes of getting into the, the community and everything, meets Catherine Hepburn, the fiery Irish girl that she is. And oh, she goes. the love interest builds at some point. And there's Victor McLaughlin, who's, who's a tough guy. I think he's her brother. And so eventually we know these two are going to have to duke it out. Not no, to. For there. honor. Oh! Yeah. For the honor of her hand. Right. <laughs> For her hand, which, by the way, he drags her through the woods to, to yeah, I mean, there's a, so let's, let's, you can talk because about. Because there's so yeah. much in this movie yeah, that, that is, is chromatic, you know, is Yeah, chromatic, yeah. non-PC. Uh, yeah. But again, we're talking about relationships. And then you brought up something from 2015. Yes, it was. Uh, it was a choice of the goddess. I mean, she oh, the goddess! Not the goddess, but she said a formidable uh, female in her own right. Oh yes, God yes. Bless her. So she said, "Can we can, can we go and see this movie?" And uh, you don't say no to the goddess. So I went and sat in I what I what was going to be is going to be a romance, and I know I was just I'm going to make the sacrifice for the wife, right? And it was completely enchanting that I hope that went through your notes. Oh, that was so great. <laughs> Gotta make the sacrifice. <laughs> Gotta make the sacrifice. Go to the movie with the wife. And it turned out to this, be this charming, beautiful, just abs- absolutely spellbinding um, uh, romance uh, with uh, Sosie Ro- Cersei, Cersei Ronan um, starring. It's called Brooklyn. And it's in ve- very much a reversal of The Quiet, one, the quiet Man. Uh, here she is in Ireland with the pressures of the Irish, old, traditional, sexist uh, Irish family, and she wants to go to Brooklyn to, uh, you know, form her own life and be her own person. And um, and she finds a completely unacceptable person pursuing an Italian boy from Brooklyn, you know. So she gets to Brooklyn. She gets from Ireland to Brooklyn. She gets to Brooklyn and she's doing well and she's, you know, she's sending some money home and all that sort of stuff and she's having a life and she's being proper and all that sort of stuff because, you know, there's part of that uh, Good movie is about that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, but this guy, you know, he loves at first sight and he just keeps, you know, he wants to 
he wants to get to know her. He wants to just, can I just walk down the street? Can I just walk you home? Can I just walk down the street with you? Can I just talk to you? Am I just allowed to maybe, can you think maybe we can have a dinner? We'll sit in the, in the window of the restaurant. So, you know, which I was in the safe. Is that a, can, you know, all these guys. And they you have witnesses. They fall in love and uh, they get secretly married because she doesn't have the, well, I don't want to give too much away. Um, but then complications from the old world uh, ensue. And it's a, it's a great, more modern look at agency and at, you know, the, the pressures of family pulling you into the past when you want to move into the future. Uh, it's a great, it's a great reversal or inverse of the quiet, uh, uh, the quiet man. And, um, uh, a tale of you know the the modern generation, I think. Even though it's a bit you know it's 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 a, it's a period piece. Um, what period and, is uh, it? Uh, I want to say the fifties or sixties or something ah. like that. Re- early, you know, not hippie sixties, but you know, prim and proper still. And, she's, and again, remember she's the in a boarding house, so, before, uh, so around there somewhere. It might be it, you know I'm looking at that guy's clothes. It, probably the uh, probably more the fifties. And my wife will shake her head, you know. How could you not know? But uh, she's brilliant, and she's I'm the not. Goddess. That's how. That's how I could not know because I'm not go. her. There she's you. the brilliant one. All right, there you go. So, so this <laughs> there is, you go, last. This you go, and and I, you know we're we're having fun here with again roles. How how people how society has looked at people's roles, whether it's the color or the gender or whatever. And so uh, our next film up is also. The, I just you know the challenge there is to look at one of those old classic romances. Yeah, and see, you know, and see what's dated and what's dead, and say, okay, what if that was happening in 2020? What would be changed? How would this character? What is what? A, and then you start. Yeah, what's the yeah? What becomes your own? Right. Oh, what's yeah. the theme that they're trying to work with here, and how would I do it now? Yeah, yeah. and that's that's very much the like you said the what if. Um, so the next film, 1954, and we got three films. Well, we got two films attached to this thought. 1954. I remember this as a, I think I was like maybe 12 or 13, I saw it on television, but it was a movie that had been made uh, years before, because it wasn't 1954 when I saw it, called Susan, just shut up, Susan Slept Here, I'm going to repeat the title because they couldn't hear you over your, your, your Gabby Hayes there, Susan Slept Here, and it was Debbie Reynolds and Dick Powell, why do I know that, don't ask. But it was a story, as I recall it, because I haven't seen it again since, of an older man, possibly in his 30s or 40s, and this Bobby Soxer, she seems to be, I remember even looking at the film, she seems to be like maybe 17, maybe, um, and she's very feisty and unmanageable. It's, it's almost like, oh God, what was what's the Shakespearean piece? Uh, Taming of the Shrew. It's almost like she's this wild kind of spirit and everything, and he's this sort of easygoing, quiet kind of guy, not domineering, not muscular, just, but, you know, very authoritative, quiet and authoritative, a writer and whatever, and slowly she falls in love with him, and he likes her, but she wants him to fall in love with her, and it's back and forth, it's a comedy, back and forth, and by the end of, towards the end of the movie, she's determined to, she's going to get him to marry her, that's it, it's, and he's saying, look, I'm old enough to be your father, and blah, blah, she doesn't care, she, she wants to marry him, that's it, and, you know, you know, like like you used to say, if you haven't seen it by now, to hell with a spoiler. By the end of the film, a happy ending, they're a couple. They're going to be a couple. 
And I'm thinking, okay. Then I realized Summer of 42, another movie, which was made in 71, 1971. Okay? And it's a young boy. He's about 15. He's on summer vacation with his family on something like, you know, somewhere out in Long Island or Fire Island or something like that. And he, he gets a crush, a mad crush on this beautiful young woman who's just married, and she and her husband are there. It takes place in the 40s. She and her husband are there on their honeymoon, kind of, and they're going to do summer vacation together, and then he gets called up. He gets called to go to war. And so the boy who's just got this mad crush, he does errands for her, he can't stop looking at her, but he's also coming of age in terms of puberty, and there's a whole bunch of shtick about trying to buy uh, prophylactics from the, the pharmacy, because at that time in life, you couldn't as a kid walk in there and do that, blah, 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 blah. Long story short, husband, I'm sorry, another spoiler, folks, husband gets killed. She gets a letter, a telegram that her husband gets killed in a war. And she's so devastated and she's so alone and she's hurting. And right at the time she gets the, the telegram, he's there helping her. And he's trying, he, you know, he doesn't know what to do, but he winds up holding her hand and he winds up holding her and she sort of just falls into his arms. You know, sorrow, pain, it's not, it's not some sort of great seduction, but somehow there's comfort in them being together for that moment in time and space. And as a, I think, 16 or 17-year-old, uh, no, I was 18, 18 or 19 when I saw this, gives you an idea of my age now, people. Um, I sat there going, yeah, oh boy, okay, you know, <laughs> pretty young thing like that, and I'm a young, wow, that's going to be great. Okay, uh, because, you know, hey, I was a teenage boy and I could do that. 2020? The 2020 version? Yeah, the 2020 in, version. In, in one iteration, she yeah. goes to prison. Yeah. Right? In another iter iteration, I think there would be a refreshing turmoil of the souls, you know? Um, even now in 2020, say that happened, your heart broke. You know, uh, the guy is a, the newlywed husband is a cop. He gets called out to the demonstrations. He gets killed to modernize with the modern spin on it. Yeah. She's broken up. The kid's helping around. He comes. He, they oh, all of a sudden they bada bada boom. And then <laughs> the bada badas. Yes. OK. There you go. You know what happens um, in, in, in her anguish. And he, you know, he wants so hard, so much. To, to help her not feel pain, and then and it becomes what it is. Yeah, yeah. And then the aftermath of what that actually is. Yeah. And how do you, you know, it would be very controversial film. I can see that film being made today. Yeah, it's sort of a Lolita in a way, you know, a little bit of that, not as young, thank God. But yeah, I mean, there's different ways to approach that, absolutely. But again, looking at the time period when these films were done. And mm -hmm. I think in both cases, at least in, in its own way, innocence right. factor, you know, uh, as opposed to lascivious or mm -hmm. extremely sexual, you know, innocence was absolutely a big factor. It was more about the emotions and finding and being confused and, and what do I do? And a lot of that made it acceptable on some uh -huh. level. I would tell, I would say that in 2020, 
it would have to be that structure. It would have to be the husband died, the older woman take comfort from the younger, much younger man. Yeah. It, if the genders were switched, couldn't tell that story. <laughs> couldn't. I don't think. I don't think. Maybe. Maybe someone writes in and tells me how it could happen, but I can't see it right now. Right. Right. But I think it's a fascinating. Okay. Does it stay one and done? Do they deal with this yearning, but they can't because of, you know, ongoing, even in 2020, social mores? Right. Uh, you know, I think it's a, you know, uh, uh, that, that's got a lot of potential. It, I'm not going to write it. I'm I, definitely not going to write it. But. I don't think that's anybody who's giving consideration of pursuing this plot, watch Summer of 42. As I said, I haven't seen Susan's left here in years. But watch Summer right. of 42, see how that ends, ends. And then see what your spin on this would be. Okay, so that's... Well, summer of 2020. What would what would it look like in summer of 2020? They, All right, let's see. Uh, no, I think we flipped the title. Uh, 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 2020 Summer. 20 Summer. Yeah, it's more modern sounding. Yeah. yeah, right. So the last film, the last... Collect- that would work thematically, too. I'm sorry, but, you know, because after the moment of passion, then they see it with 2020 Vision and all of the... And 2020 is... Hindsight is, right. Okay, there yeah. you go. So, I'll try this again. The last batch of films on our discussion today starts with Laurel and Hardy from the 1930s and uh, you, your favorites, Abbott and Costello from the 40s. Although I, you, love, I love both duets. You weren't I even like a thought. You weren't duets. even a twinkle in your father's eye at that time. You were not. I, uh, no, my father oh. was, just, was just a, a wee lad himself. Sure he was. Right. Anyway. He was born in 1928. So, yeah, he was a wee lad. Yeah, yeah. Right. All right. You were in your Laurel and Hardy. He was a wee lad. Laurel and Hardy, Abbott and Costello. I'm just leaving it alone. Abbott and Costello, buddy films, buddy comedy films. Two guys going through nonsense. As you like to call them, what did you call it? Man child? Yeah, man child uh, comedy duets, right? They they are. uh, definitely, you know, and there's always there's always um, the comedian, the straight person, right? So uh, Laurel Hardy was interesting in that Laurel was such the comedian that even though uh, uh, Oliver Hardy was a car- almost cartoonish character in and of himself, he had to take on the straighter of the two roles. Right, right. Abbott and Costello, Abbott is one of the great straight men and we mean that not in the 2020 uh, context, but in <laughs> the comedic context of not cracking the jokes, but setting up the jokes. Right. And, and Lou Costello was w- much further out there. Um, I'm sure we'll send you cards and letters. We're, we're going to see what you still have. have a Laurel and Hardy versus Abbott Costello argument. Um, but I, he was much more of a man-child, uh, capital letter child, yeah. than uh, Laurel or Hardy. Exactly. Right? Um, so then we come to modern days. And well, well, again, the setup is, again, they would go through whatever life situation was scripted within marriage, jobs, no jobs, dating, whatever the circumstances were. There was a sort of childish approach, uh, not dumb, but a childish approach to an idiotic approach to their 
trying to handle that situation, deal with that situation. And, and some, I, think, I think Laurel and Hardy had a film called A Couple of Idiots, right? I think so. I'm not sure. I'll take your I'm word not, for it. I might be wrong. But, but definitely. Send your cards and letters to X, uh, uh, yes, Alex. Cards and letters and emails, right, <laughs> to me. Or tell the damn story on air. But yeah. at least there was a, there was a silliness and a, and a wild sort of wackiness and sometimes some crazy stunts that involve these characters. And then you move forward in time to, um, I, I, I'm just gonna drop this one very quickly uh, because it was not my favorite, although as you pointed out, it has a following and a half, Dumb and Dumber, you know, uh, which again, you, you wind up with two characters which really don't have a full brain between them. Yeah. And then you brought up um, Jay and Silent Bob, and, and, and I Bill. remember Bill and Ted and Bill their and Ted, yeah. adventure. So we, we need to put an asterisk. Uh, Excuse me? Jake and, Jake and Elwood, the Blues Brothers, were oh. a form of a comedy duo that we forgot. So we'll just put it. Yes, we didn't, yeah. we didn't forget them. There they are. They're in there. Um, and they have the one film that is a classic, yeah, the crazy blues. comedy, yeah. right? Yeah. Uh, Bill and Ted and Jay and Silent Bob are modern takes, more or less modern, they, over the last 20, 25 years, mm-hmm. um, uh, on Lauren Hardy, Abbott and Castell's type comedic duets. Right. right? Um, Jay and... I'm going to talk about Jay and Silent Bob a little more. So Bill and Ted are lovely, uh, happy idiots. And... Um, and bestowed you. with sci-fi power in the form of a time-traveling telephone booth to go into Don't their history. Right? Huh? Don't you have one of those? I do not because George Carlin has passed. But if he was oh. still around, he may nah. have lent me his time-traveling telephone booth, right? He didn't um, it, yeah. And they, uh, they did their history project, and then they were uh, um, called upon to write the song that would save the world. And apparently, with this new one that's coming out uh, uh, this summer, they're called upon, they're called to task. You know, you were asked, you were tasked with creating a song that would save the world 25 years ago. And basically, it's like, what have you done with your life? Which is and really the, an interesting... Because the movie's called Bill and Ted Face the Music. Face the Music. And yeah. if you look at it metaphorically, yeah. it goes a couple of different ways. But here's... Here's that generation. I guess they were 80s, 90s kids. Mm-hmm. Uh, now they're, you know, now they're grown adults. And what have I done with my life? That's going to be that movie, you know? Bill, uh, excuse me, uh, Jay and Silent Bob began as stoner pot salesmen outside the convenience store that was the location of Kevin Smith's first movie. I'm Works. sorry, got, we got to just bow our heads for a, a split second. Cheech and Chong. Because you talk sure. about her and sweat, you got it, you got it. Okay, Cheech and Chong, we brought them in there, just like you just did the Blues Brothers. And brother. a comedy Boom. duo. Uh, yep. A comedy duo, both in stand-up, and then they make, made it work in, and in, in, a, in a way that may not work these days. But, you know, Loser, uh, smoke, uh, Potheads, yep. which was, you know, a, a, a riff on the Thin Man, Loser, you know, or, or Rich, Soppy, Drunks. These guys were uh, weed. There was all weed humor, right? And Jay and Silent Bob definitely influenced by that. And he hasn't. He had acknowledged as much. Kevin Smith has acknowledged that there's no Jay and Silent Bob without Bill and Ted, right? 
but they just start as comedic kind of almost extras or aside to the main thrust of that movie. They prove um, popular enough to be brought back for more rats. Again, comedic sides. They, they have a little more agency and they get to um, parody um, the Batman movie with all these wonderful toys and all that sort of stuff. But they, again, grow in such popularity that they wind up doing a movie. They do Dogma, which they are, you know, again, part of the cast. Mm-hmm. And then they do Jay and Silent Bob, which they're the uh, strike back when they're now they're the heroes. Right. So in 2019, Kevin Smith re- reinvented fascinating in, in, in view of the quarantine pre-quarantine. He reinvented how to market a movie and how to distribute a movie by going on tour with it. That's right. And winding up in Forbes, he made much more movie, much more money money per seat for that movie than any other movie. He set a record, any other movie uh, in in, uh, film history, because he would go and do a whole event with that sort of stuff. But the movie itself... It kind of comments on everything we've been talking about today in that he looked at his own stuff and he looked at Hollywood's tendency over the last 15 years or so to reboot things endlessly. Um, And he got to be meta. He got to reboot his own movie as way of parodying reboots by like looking right into the camera and said, who would pay for that same old movie twice? You know, <laughs> looking right into the camera. And at the same time, he was able to completely comment on all of modern society, pop culture, you know, uh, society with convention humor. And he did a parody of the first Iron Man movie, the very first iteration of the uniform. And then was Kevin Smith in his own movie looking in the camera and saying, "Someone's gonna, Marvel's going to sue somebody over this. And, you know, it was parody after parody to play with the idea of what are we really doing? Are we bankrupting our culture by not adding anything new to the discussion? And then he added something new to the discussion by deepening these two happy idiots, the classic comic duet. Jay becomes a father. And the reboot takes a different meaning because life gets rebooted and you become, you're no longer the man-child, you're no longer the star on the stage, to paraphrase the line. Now, you're shining the light on on your child. And learn how rewarding that is to not be so selfish in me. And it's kind of a meta comment on the entire boomer generation that won't get off the stage, <laughs> you know, right? Oh, you mean and, like and me. say, <laughs> make room for the next creatives, you know, which is very fascinating. And it brings us back to that idea and to the invitation to the audience, to creatives out there to look what's out, look what, what the classics are, look at the tropes and ask yourself, what if? How do I tell that tale from my modern perspective? You know, I think we have to learn from the classics. I think we have to learn the 
tropes enable to to enable us to refresh the tropes. We have to learn the structures to be able to renew the structures, you know, and to say to ourselves, "What if, right? What Absolutely. if? Where where are we going from here? What and what that's if? How you add the new vision, right? What what if? And and like you said, new vision. What can I add to it? I often say to my students, the thing, one of the things that makes it different. Because there's only so many plots and all that. One of the things is, what do you bring to the table? You know, what of you are you going to put into this mix that's going to make it fresh and, and exciting and engaging? And I think that's... And then, of course, craft do. comes in and, right. you know... All those things. And, and, and the storytelling and, and uh, rewrites. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, God, no. We'll do an episode about rewrites. Let's, let's do a re reboot of rewrites. <laughs> On that note, folks, we have talked today about telling the damn story uh, through time, through time and space. And we hope that you got something out of that, because we certainly did. Uh, and, and Chris has said it a couple of times, just, you know, comments, comments, comments. Please keep the comments. Keep those, those cards, letters, and emails coming. Because, uh, and thank you for some of the ones that came in last week in particular. Um, we will be back again uh, very soon with a, and I'm not even going to tell you what it is yet. But Chris and I are working out something mm. real special for the oh. summer. Okay, so it's the teaser. Yes, it teaser. is. Yes, it is. Not a wet teaser. <laughs> okay, so on that note, folks, we'll say you know uh, thank you for joining us. Uh, go forth and be brilliant. And once again, be sure to be sure to what, Chris? Find a way to tell the damn story. Adios, folks. Take care, Chris. Peace. Peace.